Cool. Okay. So we're hopefully going to finish chapter nine of Esther today. We did the first half a couple weeks ago. It said, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the edict of the king and his law were to be executed. So if you guys remember the story, through Haman, Haman had passed this law in Persia that on a particular day, in 11 months time, on the 13th day of the 12th month, anybody who found a Jew was able to kill, a, kill them and take their stuff. And then the rest of the story of Esther was basically trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And partly why it was a problem was because in Persia, once a law had been passed, you can't undo it. Not even the king can undo the law. And so in the end, they passed a second law that said, on that day, the Jews can also defend themselves. That was the solution. And so now that day has finally come. We don't really know how it's going to work out, right? The Jews don't know how it's going to work out. Yeah, they're allowed to defend themselves, but who knows how that's going to, you know, whether that's going to be enough or are they still going to get slaughtered. It says that it was on this day that the enemies of the Jews had supposed that they would gain power over them. This was the day when the, those who hated the Jews thought they were going to defeat and destroy the Jews, but contrary to expectations, the Jews gained power over their enemies. The Jews assembled themselves in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to strike out against those who were seeking their harm. No one was able to stand before them, for dread of them fell on all the people. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who performed the king's businesses, business were assisting the Jews, for the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them all. And so... Everybody was actually terrified of the Jews when this day finally came because they'd seen all that had happened. And this, this Jewish man, Mordecai, was now super important in the, king, in the Persian kingdom. And all of the king's servants were helping the Jews. And so everybody was scared of them. And Mordecai was of high rank in the king's palace and word about him was spreading throughout all the provinces. His influence continued to become greater and greater. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, bringing death and destruction, and they did as they pleased with their enemies. In Susa, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. In addition, they also killed the 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadathah, the enemies of the Jews, but they did not confiscate their properties. On that same day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was brought to the king's attention. Then the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and, ten son and the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? So he, Esther's in the palace. I'm guessing she doesn't really know what's going on. As I said, like, they would have been really nervous. This day's arrived, but they don't know how it's going to play out. And Esther doesn't know how it is playing out. And so the king comes and tells her, in Susa, there's a, they've already, the Jews have killed 500 of their enemies. And he's like, imagine what's happening in the rest of my kingdom. But then he says to her, like, what is your request? It shall be given to you. What other petition do you have? It shall be done. Like, if you, if you're, if, if you still have any concern, just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it for you. And that's what we got up to a couple weeks ago. Who wants to read the next? Mike's down there. Verses 13 to 15. What Esther's request is. 
Esther replied, If the king is so inclined, let the Jews who are in Susa be permitted to act tomorrow, also according to the today's law, and let them hang the ten sons of Haman on the gallows. So the king issued orders for this to be done. A law was passed in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa then assembled on the 14th day of the month Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not confiscate their property. Okay, so it's pretty brutal. Esther's basically like, I, I don't know, maybe Mordecai had got word to her that like, look, the job's not done, we need more time. <laughs> maybe Esther just kind of suspected this, I don't know. But she, she says to, hey, uh, to Xerxes, to the king, give us another day, same law. And he says, fine. And so there's another 300 uh, who are killed. She also asks that Haman's 10 sons get <coughs> hanged, impaled on a pole. Now, they're already dead. So what's the point, do you think? Yeah, I think it I think it was a warning to everybody. Like that's why you were putting them up on the was like you know, don't do what Haman and no doubt his sons were, were wanting to do. Um that's the one part as a warning to other people. The other thing is that in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if a person commits a sin, this is it, the the law that God gives to Israel. If a person commits a sin punishable by death and is executed, and you hang the corpse on a tree or a wood, pole, whatever, his body must not remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must make certain that you bury him that same day for the one who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. You must not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so it also was like putting a curse on Haman and his kids, essentially. Um, by, by hanging him. And this, this uh, everybody who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God is used in the New Testament in relation to Jesus, that Jesus essentially took the curse that belonged to us sinners on himself by being hanged on a tree. Anyway, so the king agrees to, to Esther's request and as it says, another 300 um, men in Susa are killed. Then, verses, verse 16, let's read. The rest of the Jews who were throughout the province of the kings assembled in order to stand up for themselves and to have the have rest from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of their adversaries, but they did not confiscate their property. Yummers. Okay. Yep, so to say, Xerxes is like, there's 500 dead in Susa in the city. Imagine what's, or I wonder what's happening in the rest of my kingdom. And apparently in the rest of his kingdom, there were 75,000 who were killed. Which is a lot of people, right? What do you think? How does it make you feel reading that? Sad. 
Good, bad? Sorry? Doesn't make you feel good, yeah. Went too far. What do you mean? You guys go too far. I Guys, wait, wait, wait. I feel like it's kind of horrifying what, what people would actually do if they're given the chance to actually get allowed to kill the other person, you know? Even, even though, like, let's say somebody, um, like, says something bad to you, now they become your enemy, and then the next day you're, you're, you'll be given, like, let's say, like, the same law. You're allowed to defend yourself. So some people would take it like killing them, just defending them. Mm. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, a, along the same lines, like, when I read that, it's not comfortable for me. I don't like it. Um, it's a lot of people dead. Um, yeah, but to put it into some perspective, at that time, it's estimated that the Persian population was around about 50 million people. There's some estimates that the Jewish population within Persia could have been up to 20% of the population, 10 million, but others estimate about 750,000 Jews. It is less, but regardless, it's way more than 75,000. And had their enemies had the opportunity to do what they had wanted to do, it would have been far, far worse. The other thing is that this is not like, this isn't a genocidal massacre. Like, this is war. It's being fought. They're fighting against those men who want to destroy them. But they're fighting against men, not women and children. That's completely different to what their enemies had planned, yeah? We'll get there. We'll get there. But yes, that is also significant. So they're fighting against men, not women and children, which is different to what their enemies had planned for them. Back in chapter 3, it said, Letters were sent by the runners to all the king's provinces, stating that they should destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, from young to old, women and children, and to loot and plunder their possessions. And that's not an exaggeration. This has happened many, many times through history. World War II, obviously, is a very raw example of that. But in Kiev, you guys will probably have heard of that recently. Kiev in Ukraine, the capital of the Ukraine. On Two days, 29th and 30th of September, 1941, the German soldiers marched 34,000 
Jewish men, women, children, babies, old grannies, to a ravine, a big valley outside Kiev called Babanyar, and just machine gunned them over two days, 34,000. In the south, less than a month later, on the 23rd of October in Odessa, also in the Ukraine, German and Romanian soldiers on one day shot and killed and burnt in a barn 30,000 Jewish men, women, children, whatever. Ukraine's big, yeah. And then a couple years later, in uh, November 1943, in a place called Lublin in Poland, there were a bunch of Jewish concentration camps, and over a period of time, they had the Jews go out and dig these giant zigzagging trenches outside the concentration camps. And they told them that these trenches were defense against air raids. But then on the 3rd of November and continued on the 4th of November over two days, they marched 43,000, the 43,000 prisoners in those camps out into these trenches and had soldiers sitting on the edge, made them lie down and just shot them, killed them. Well, some of them they didn't kill, but they, they died. For no reason other than that they're Jewish. And there was no differentiating men and women, old and young, you know? And so I think that as uncomfortable as these verses are to read, one has to realize the reality that the alternative could have, and I think would have been like so, so, so much worse. Yeah. But they did not confiscate their property. It's the third time that phrase has been repeated in this chapter. Why do you reckon? that their enemies had. Yeah. So they, like, even though they, um, not the, not the they, they wouldn't have taken it, even though he had it. So the freedom. Yeah. What is it saying for them? Because they had the right, like, the law that was passed basically was an exact mirror of the Persian law which was you can kill your enemies and you can take their stuff. Why not take their stuff? What is it saying to everybody, do you think?
Alternatively, say they went and they, they killed these 75,000 people and took all of their stuff. What might people think? Sorry? Why? What might people think? Why are they doing this? What might the implication be? Like, if they take all of the stuff, why might people think they're doing this? To take their stuff. What's the motivation for that? Greed. Greed. Yeah, exactly. Like, it would be easy to think that what they're doing here is they're envious of their rich neighbors and they're greedy and they're killing them to take their stuff. And so I think what's made very clear in this, the fact that they don't take any of the stuff that belong to their enemies, is like, it's not about greed. It's not about envy and jealousy. We're, the, the only reason we're doing this is to protect ourselves and to protect our families from wicked and violent people who want to kill us. You know? So, okay. That's, so I think that's the reason why they don't take the stuff. But... Why repeat it again and again and again? You only need to say that once, and now we know what happens. Why repeat it three times? Because in the Bible, this is God's Word. Nothing's there by accident. And when you find things repeated again and again in the Bible, it's not an accident is obviously something that God wants to like catch our attention with, right? That's why he's repeating it. Don't miss this. There's something important here. And I think there is something important here. I think this, they did not confiscate their property, is another hint to the, the fateful story of Saul that began this whole mess. Remember, Haman was a descendant of, well, we'll see. You who were here on Friday, this was the story that I told you to, to come and we'll, we'll have a look, th look at it. So back in the book of Samuel, Saul's been made king. And Samuel comes to Saul with instructions from God. Again, these are not instructions I like reading. But, Yeah. The Lord of Heaven's armies has said, I carefully observed how the Amalekites opposed Israel along the way when Israel came up from Egypt. So go now and strike down the Amalekites. Destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Put them to death. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, cat, camel, and donkey alike. Again, like I say, not comfortable. I don't want to go into it too much at this point, except to say that like God had, there were reasons for this. Um, but that was, that was God's command to Saul. So what happened? It says, Then Saul struck down the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of the Amalekites alive. 
but he executed all of Agag's people with the sword. However, Saul and the army spared Agag, along with the best of the flock, the cattle, the fatlings, and the lambs, as well as everything else that was of value. They were not willing to slaughter them, but they did slaughter everything that was despised and worthless. So, Saul took revenge on the Amalekites like God had told him to. But did he do what, as he was commanded? Spared Agag, their king. Hundreds of years later, that's Haman. And they saved everything of value, everything that was valuable. The next day, God sends Samuel to speak to Saul. And when, Saul, when Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to him, Saul said to Samuel, may the Lord bless you. I have fulfilled the Lord's orders. And Samuel says, if that's true, what's the sound of sheep that I hear? And the sound of cattle. Saul said, they were brought from the Amalekites. The army spared the best of the flock and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, our God, but everything else we slaughtered. And so Saul basically starts making excuses. He says, it wasn't me. It was the army that did this, firstly. And secondly, they did it for a good reason. They did it so that they could sacrifice, worship God. Samuel says, that's not what God told you to do. He says, why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Instead, you have greedily rushed upon the plunder. You have done what is wrong in the Lord's eyes. So Samuel sees right through Saul's excuses. He knows that it's not actually because they wanted to sacrifice to God and blah, blah, blah. It's because they were greedy. They wanted the stuff. It was good. They liked it. They didn't want to destroy it. It seemed like a waste, and so they took it. And it's only now, when Saul gets caught out and called up on it, that he starts looking for like some good reasons why maybe he did these things. But even if that was his motivation, even if they had saved these sheep and cows in order to sacrifice to God, Samuel says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obedience? Certainly, obedience is better than sacrifice, and paying attention, like listening, doing what you're told, is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and presumption, like uh, arrogance, defiance, doing what, yeah, doing what you want to do, despite being told to do something else, is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord's orders, He has rejected you from being king. And so this is the moment when the kingdom is taken away from Saul. Samuel says, you say you've saved these, you've, you say that you've disobeyed God so that you can worship him. Which makes no sense. He says, Doesn't, what God would rather that you just trust him and do what he told you to do. Then there's no need for sacrifice, you know? But, yeah, again, to sin against God so that you can then worship Him doesn't make any sense. Anyway, the point is, this is the event that started the whole, the whole mess that culminates in the book of Esther with Haman. 
and it happened because of Saul's greed. This is the mistake that cost Saul the kingdom of Israel, and it was taking spoil from his enemies. And so I think the Jews here in Persia didn't want to make the same mistake. And to make that crystal clear to us, gets repeated again and again and again. They did not confiscate the property. They didn't do what Saul did, which started this whole thing. Okay, verses 17 to 19. All this happened on the 13th day of the, uh, of the month of Ada. They then rested on the 14th day and made it a day of banqueting and happiness. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th days and rested on the 15th making it a day for banqueting and happiness. This is why the Jews who are in the rural country, those who lived in rural villages, set aside the 14th day of the month of Ada for happiness, banqueting, and a holiday, and sending gifts to one another. Okay, so this is kind of just at the end of the book, summarizing like and uh, explaining some just basic things to us. So after these 11 long months, Stress and anxiety, fasting and praying, no doubt a lot of that in the lead up, and then a day or two of war and violence. They now finally have peace. They're able to rest and not just rest, but also celebrate what God's done for them. In the book of Psalms, it says that you turned my morning into dancing a song that goes kind of like that, right? One of the worship songs. You re removed my sackcloth and covered me with joy. So now my heart will sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will always give thanks to you. And in uh, Jesus in the New Testament says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Hmm? Any idea? What does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Yeah, yeah, humility, and also like I think just being down. Like if you're in high spirits, what does that mean? Yeah, happy, energetic, like you're feeling good, right? And to be poor is the opposite of high. <laughs> you or having lots of it. You're having lots of spirit, you're a little bit, of, you're down kind of thing. And so God, Jesus says, blessed. If you're poor in spirit, if you're feeling down, you are blessed. Yeah, exactly what? That's not really how it feels. But he says, you're blessed because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Yeah? Is that similar to the one where it's like, if you do something and you just replace now, you earn your reward, but like if you do something that's too close, you get Exactly. That's exactly it, yeah. And he says there as well, uh, in Luke, blessed are you who weep now, for you will 
laugh. And basically, yeah, that's the promise that yes, you, life might not be going well for you now, but you're going to be rewarded for what you're suffering today. And it's going to be worth it in the end. And this for the Jewish people, it's definitely the case. They've gone from mourning to comfort, from weeping to laughter and joy and celebration. Next, verses 20 to 22. Making good progress. Uh, yeah, I think we'll get there. Mordecai wrote these matters down and sent letters to all Jews who were throughout all provinces of king. How do you say that, Desi? Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, both near and far, to have them observe the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar each year. As the time when the Jews gained rest from their enemies, the month when their troubles was turned to happiness and their mourning to a holiday. These were to be days of banqueting, happiness, and sending gifts to one another and providing for the poor. Okay, so with the situation now resolved, it says that Mordecai wrote these matters down. What matters? What do you think Mordecai wrote down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's telling them basically what all has happened. Because you can imagine this is a huge empire. Sure, in Susa, maybe people knew what was going on. But there'd be Jews in villages miles and miles away in the Persian Empire who all they know is randomly, a year ago, this law appeared that said, in 11 months' time, you're going to die. Why? No idea. They don't know that Mordecai wasn't bowing to Haman, and so Haman got angry and went to the king and all that nonsense. All they know is suddenly there's this law out of nowhere that says you're going to die in 11 months' time. People can, your enemies can kill you, and you can't do anything about it. And then a few months pass, and randomly there's this other law that comes up and says, oh, now you're allowed to defend yourself. And so probably there were like rumors and things that was passing along to, to try to explain like what's going on here. But really, a lot of them probably had no idea what had happened. And so Mordecai wrote these things down. I think he was basically just explaining what had happened over the last few years and why it had happened. Um, and essentially, what God had, like how God had brought them through to this point. So some people based on that verse think that Mordecai wrote the book of Esther. Don't really know. There's no consensus on it. It's possible. But regardless, I think he wrote all the stuff that's in Esther and published it through the kingdom so that everybody knew these things, like the backstory to what, to what was going on. And he also instituted a new holiday. We all like that. New public holiday. For the Jews to observe the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, each year as the time when the Jews gained rest from their enemies, the month when their troubles was turned to happiness and their mourning to a holiday, <laughs> to celebration. We'll get there soon. So traditionally, there's these two days, 14th and 15th. I think it was explained 
in the last bit, right? Yeah, it was explained just before that. So for most of the empire, the war happened on the 13th and then they celebrated the next day, the 14th. But in Susa, the war happened on the 13th and 14th and they, so they celebrated on the 15th. And so apparently, traditionally, any city that was big enough to have a wall around it at the time of Joshua, which was hundreds of years ago, they would celebrate on the 15th, but all, everybody else would celebrate on the 14th. Today, only really Jerusalem and a few other cities celebrate on the 15th, and everybody else celebrates on the 14th. And this year, the 14th of Adar was the 7th of March, was when they had this celebration. Okay. Somebody read verses 23 to 25. <laughs> so the Jews committed themselves to continuing what they had begun to do and to do what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman and son of Hamadatah and Agai, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised plans against the Jews to destroy them. He had cast, he had cast per, that is the lot, in order to afflict and destroy them. But when the matter came to the king's attention, the king gave written orders to Amman's evil intentions that he had devised against the Jews should fall on his own head. He and his sons were hanged on the gallows. Okay, so basically it says that after learning, after they learned all that God had done for them, the Jewish people committed to remembering what God had done by keeping this holiday, this new holiday that Mordecai had um, instituted. And then there's this little summary of the story that there was this guy called Haman, the son of Amadathar, an Agagite, which means he was a descendant of Agag, which links back to Saul, that Haman had plotted to destroy the Jewish people. He threw... Lots, per, what are called per, to determine what day he was going to destroy God's people. But in the end, all of his evil plans came crashing down on his own head. And, yeah, again, that's not new, that idea. It's, we, there's warnings about it throughout the scriptures, which we've looked at before. In Proverbs, it says, The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the deceitful will be ensnared by their own mischief. Proverbs 26, whoever digs a pit for somebody to cause somebody else to fall into their pit will fall into it themselves. And whoever rolls a stone, this is like up a hill to drop it onto somebody, bless you, that stone will roll back on them. And in Psalm 7, it says, see the one who is pregnant with wickedness who conceives destructive plans and gives birth to harmful lies. He digs a pit and then falls into the hole he has made. He becomes the victim of his own evil, destructive plans, and the violence he intended for others falls on his own head. And so that obviously is Haman and his sons, who end up impaled on the pole that they'd set up for Mordecai. Wait, were Haman's sons like part of the plan? I think so, yeah. 
It doesn't say explicitly, but that would be what I would assume. Or would they just like tell you to Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Now it says here that he cast per, that is the lot, in order to afflict and destroy them. Do you know what lots are? Kind of, yeah. It's essentially like throwing dice, flipping a coin. They they did. They threw lots to see who would get Jesus's uh, coat, cloak thing that that they didn't want to break up. So this was all the way back in Esther three. It said that in the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus's reign, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman in order to determine a day and a month on which to kill all the Jews. And it turned out to be the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. And so our understanding is that the Persians were apparently very, very superstitious. And so rather than just decide for himself what day to carry out his plans, Haman decided to leave that to fate. Cast lots, flip a coin, right? Rather than have it in his own hands. Now, probably he would have gone to the magicians, astrologers, the priests of his time and asked them to cast lots for him to determine the most favorable, the luckiest day on which to carry out this, this uh, genocide. The word for lots in actually Akkadian, like it was the Babylonian language, which is then adopted by the Persians, was pur. And the plural of that in Hebrew is purim. You add an im, that's like an s. Now, archaeologists have actually found some of these ancient lots, pur. One of them, one of the oldest, is this one, which belonged to a man called Iahali. And he was the grand vizier, the grand advisor of the king of Assyria around about 850 BC. How, it does look like a dice, except that it's almost 3,000 years old. Which is kind of cool and it is it's like a little cube it's except that it's engraved on four sides and it's engraved with blessing oh. and and i guess you throw the dice and see which blessing you're gonna receive from god <laughs> and on <laughs> on this particular dice they have the word puru which is the assyrian where the pur comes from they have that word twice on this dice which is kind of cool yeah I don't know. I wasn't there. This is all I know. Yeah. But anyway, so it's quite cool. So this is kind of what we're talking about. Verse 26 to 28. Do you want to read? If you want. Or you can give it to somebody else. <laughs> or, or part of it and you can pass it on for this reason these days are known as Purim after the name of Pur therefore because of the account found in the letter letter and what they had faced in this 
regard and what had happened to them. The Jews established as binding on themselves, their descendants, and all who joined their company that they should observe these two days without fail, just as written and at the appropriate time on the annual basis. These days were to be reminded and to be celebrated in every generation and in every family the every every province and every city the, the Jews were not to fail to observe these days of Purim the rem- remembrance of them was not to case among their descendants. Nice, well done. (laughs) That's a big message. So, okay, so we have this new holiday and the name of the holiday is? Purim. Purim, named after the lots, the poor. Which kind of like, you're like, okay, yeah, fine, fine, that makes sense. But does it really make sense? It's kind of a random detail in this whole story of Esther to pick out the dice as the thing that you're going to name your holiday after. It's kind of random, I think. But I actually don't think it's random. I think it makes an important statement about the, like, what we've talked about, this hidden truth that is underlying this whole secular, like what seems to be a secular and non-religious story. Because remember, as we've said, this is a book of the Bible, and yet God does not appear in the book at all. Not once does it mention God, which is very strange. However, as you read the story, you can kind of see God working over and over again. There's all these coincidences, you know, that, that come together to save the Jewish people. And it's clear to us that God is behind all of those coincidences, but in the background, not in the front, you know? And I think that that's kind of, and we've talked about that, I think that's the point of the story. I think that's why it's written in the way that it is. It's because that's how we mostly experience God in our lives. It's not exodus, plagues and pillar of fire and all of these sorts of things, you know? It's not, it's, it's not like that. For most of us, God is there, but He's in the background. And we see His working without seeing Him. And that really is what the book of Esther is. And I think that this, even in the name Purim, it hints towards that. Because when Haman went to his priests and asked them to cast lots, that wasn't a secular thing he was doing. It wasn't a non-religious thing. It's not because he couldn't make decisions. Like, that's me. I can't make a decision, flip a coin. That's not what he was doing. He was going to his priests and essentially putting this plan of his into the hands of his gods. Asking his God to bless him. 
to bless his plan, to give him success in it, right? And one of the ways that he indicated that he was giving it over to his God was by giving this decision over to his God through Lot. So by naming this holiday Purim, what the Jews are actually doing is kind of mocking Haman's God, right? Making the point that even though Haman thought he was giving his plans into the hands of his God, they all came to nothing. They all fell apart because the God of Israel is greater than whoever God he was throwing lots in front of, you know? Whoever's hands these lots were supposed to be placing this, this whole plan in front of. There's this verse in Proverbs 16 that says, the dice, the lot, the poor are thrown into the lap, but their every decision is from the Lord. Not Ahura Mazda, who is the Persian god of light, but the Lord, the God of Israel. And not just dice that are thrown into the lap of a Jewish person. Every dice that is thrown into whoever's lap, even Haman's, even his priests, their decision is from God, the God of Israel, the Lord. And so, in other words, in the name of their holiday, every year, year after year after year, they would be declaring that their God, the God of Israel, is greater than the other gods. And certainly the Persian gods, but all the other gods. That their Lord is in control. Even if he isn't mentioned by name, he's the one who's in control. Okay. Then it said... What's it say? Almost, almost, almost there. Okay, so, not yet. They're celebrating the day that they gained power over their, their enemies. Whose enemies? The Jewish people's enemies. It says that again and again throughout this chapter. Verse 1, it was on this day that, contrary to expectations, the Jews gained power over their enemies. Esther 9, the Jews struck all their enemies. They did as they pleased with their enemies. 22, the Jews gained rest from their enemies. So whose enemies are they? Jewish peoples. But the enemies of Israel are also the enemies of God. In Exodus 23, God says, I am going to send an angel before you to protect you as you journey and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. And if you carefully obey him and do all that I command, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will be an adversary to your adversaries. It's quite an interesting passage. Yeah. Are you an enemy of Israel? Enemy of the Jews? Are they an enemy of Israel? Yeah, if they are, then yeah. That's what he's saying. If they're your enemy, then they're my enemy. 
And like I said, it's quite an interesting passage. Who is this angel that's going to go before Israel and protect them and who they have to obey? We won't get into that. It says, if you carefully obey him, if you do all that I command, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Israel obviously didn't do that. But, as it says in 2 Timothy 2, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful since he cannot deny himself. God's faithful even if we aren't. And this promise to be an enemy to the enemies of Israel is really a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham all the way back when he called him. Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your country, your relatives, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Then I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse the one who curses you, so that all the families of the earth may be blessed through you. And so God tells Abraham to leave his home, leave his family, leave everything he knows and go out to this land that I will show you. But he makes a promise. He says, like, you're leaving everything you know, but I'm going to be on your side, which is pretty cool. (laughs) He says, I will bless you and I will protect you. And those who want to harm you are going to have to deal with me. So that's, that's, the, that's the promise and the relationship that God has with his people. Moses later describes that relationship with a really beautiful, what's called idiom. And it's an idiom that has survived all the way to today. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, The Lord's allotment is his people and Jacob is his special possession. The Lord found him in a desolate land, in an empty wasteland where animals howl. He continually guarded him and taught him. He continually protected him as the apple of his eye. Have you guys heard that phrase before? You're the apple of my eye? What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah, you're the most important thing in my life, pretty much. Value you more than anything else. Now, in Hebrew, the word is not apple. The word is ishon. It means, the word for, the word for man is ish. Ishon is like a little man. Why? This, what, what do you think the little man of his eye is? Why? This is. This is the Hebrew word for pupil. Why do you think the Hebrew word for pupil is little man? What is? No. <laughs> oh, it's terrifying. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that AI generated? Because if you look closely, you can see yourself reflected. As a little man in their eye. Jesse, that's gonna get 
So that, that, that idiom, that you are the apple of my eye, you're the little man in my eye, <laughs> that has continued all the way to today. We still know what that means. It means you are the most valued thing in my life. You are the apple of your parents' eyes. Israel, and by extension us, we are the apple of God's eye. Now, your eye is also the most sensitive part of your body. Apparently, it has the highest density of nerves of any part of your body. And so David says to God, he's praying, protect me, as you would protect the people of your eye. Like, if I'm your, if I'm your eye, protect me like I'm your eye. Don't let anything touch me. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And that's exactly what God promises to do for Israel. In the book of Zechariah, God says, For his own glory he has sent me to the nations that plundered you. For anybody who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. You mess with Israel, you're poking your finger in God's eye. And it's not going to end well. But it's a little bit more involved than that. We looked at the psalm last time from Asaph. Asaph says, O oh God, don't be silent, don't ignore us, don't be inactive, O oh God. For look, your enemies are making a commotion. Those who hate you are hostile. They carefully plot against your people and make plans to harm the ones you cherish. They say, come on, let's annihilate them so that they are no longer a nation. Then the name of Israel will be remembered no more. Yes, they devise a unified strategy. They form an alliance against you. What are these people plotting to do? Wipe out Israel, to annihilate your people so that they are no longer a nation. Whose enemies are they? Your enemies. Those who hate you are plotting against us. And so I think it's important to ask the question, why do people hate Israel? Why do people hate the Jews? Yeah, it's because they hate God and they know God loves them. There has chosen his special possession, it said earlier. And so the reason why enemy, Israel's enemies are God's enemies is because they are actually God's enemies and that's why they're Israel's enemies. Know what I mean? It's kind of the other way around. It's not that they hate Israel. It's not that they hate God because they hate Israel. They hate Israel because they hate God. Jesus actually said it's going to be exactly the same for us. He says, "He said, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you do not belong to the world, because I have chosen you, because you are special to me." For this reason, the world hates you. And in Luke, he says, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And so just like Israel could expect to be hated by the world, Jesus says it's the same for us, that the, those who hate God are going to hate you too. but realize it's not you that they hate. It's me, it's God, you know? And in the same way that God promised to protect Israel from those who hated them, Jesus, the, well, the angel, I would say, 
who goes before us to protect us has promised us victory too. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So he says to you, the world's going to hate you. And then he says, I've told you this so that you can have peace. <laughs> but he says, in the world, you will have trouble and suffering. Like, it sucks. The world sucks. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. But be encouraged. Take courage. I've conquered the world. You're going to win in the end. Those who weep will laugh. Those who mourn will be comforted. So, anyway, all that to say, Haman and Haman's gods were no match for Israel and Israel's God, who was the one that they were really taking a stand against. The God of Israel is God, even over Haman's dice. Now, in response to this letter that they received from Haman, explaining all that's happened over the preceding months, it says that the Jews established as binding on themselves, their descendants, and all who joined their company, that they should observe these two days without fail, just as written, and at the appropriate time on an annual basis. And so, in other words, they committed that they, their descendants, and anybody else who wants to call themselves Jewish, have to keep Purim every year, at the right time, forever. Why? Why did they think it was so important that they continue to celebrate this feast year after year, forever? Uh-huh. Yeah, and what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the point of celebrating that every year? What is the point of Christmas? To not forget. Yeah, exactly. Because we naturally forget. We forget what God did for us yesterday. Never mind what He did for our people two and a half thousand years ago. Sorry? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that they don't forget. They didn't want to forget. They wanted it to be remembered in every generation, in every family, in every province, and every city. And so, the Jewish people have not stopped celebrating Purim. As I said, this year, it was on the 7th of March. Because it's based on, a Hebrew, on the Jewish calendar, which is, doesn't actually line up with the Roman calendar. So they haven't stopped celebrating Purim, and the story of Esther and all that God did for them hasn't been forgotten because they haven't stopped celebrating Purim. Okay, we're almost, almost done. We're going to talk quickly about how they remember Purim. These days were to be remembered and to be celebrated in every generation, every family, every province. So today there are four main components to the celebration of Purim. The first is... Public reading. Every adult, men and women, are required to go to a synagogue where they read the story of Esther. And apparently, every time the name Haman is mentioned, everybody makes heaps and heaps of noise. 
stamp their feet, shout, they've got these clickery things, to blot out his name. Yes, boo, yeah, 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 exactly. Get out of here, Haman, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought of telling you that at the start of our study, but then it would have been noisy and disruptive. So anyway, so that's, that's one of the things that they do. The other three parts to the, fest, the, the Jewish festival of Purim are based on this verse in Esther 9 that says, these were to be days of banqueting, happiness, sending gifts to one another, and providing for the poor. So the second co component is gifts for your friends. Every adult is required to give a gift of food, two types of food, to one friend. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we should do it next year. And you were required to give some kind of charity to two people, to two poor people, to fulfill the uh, providing for the poor. And then the last thing is food. Eat. There's a, there's quite a like, uh, I guess funny, funny and famous quote that is said to characterize most Jewish holidays, which is, they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. <laughs> and it's the same for Purim. These were to be days of banqueting and happiness, and so they have a big celebratory meal. Food absolutely brings happiness. So yeah, big, big meal. There's also, interestingly, a lot of wine. So, so the Jewish rabbis of ages past, they believed that wine played a big part in the salvation of the Jews in the story of Esther. Wine is the reason why Esther became queen. Wine was involved, it was the banquet of wine when Haman had his downfall. And so this guy, Rabbi Rava, about 300 AD, he wrote that a person is obligated to become intoxicated on Purim until one does not know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. Which is interesting. Since then, <laughs> since then, Others have kind of like reinterpreted what he was saying and they say, well, you don't have to get like blind drunk. You can drink until you fall asleep. And once you're asleep, same thing, right? You don't know the difference. Anyway, regardless, this is definitely not biblical. The Bible in Ephesians says, do not get drunk with wine. Because that leads to debauchery, it leads to sin, it leads to doing stupid things. Yes. But rather be filled with the Spirit. So anyway, this is not, not biblical. This is not what we should be doing. But it's tradition in... It's doing tradition. So not allowed to go drinking. And then there are other traditions as well. One is they dress sometimes in some places. They dress up in costumes and masks, masquerades. One, another one is that they burn effigies. So you guys know like Guy Fawkes? Yeah. They used to burn a... Make a fake guy, guy and burn him on the... Bonfire. That's what Guy Fox was? Yeah. That's what the bonfire was. Anyway, they used to do the same thing with Haman. They would set him up on a, on a pole, a fake Haman, and set him alight. However, that caused quite big problems with Christians. Because, as we've talked about, 
the word that's translated hanged can mean impaled. impaled, but it's the same word that's used for crucified. Pretty sure at the time of Haman, what the Persians were doing at that time was impaling. And so we're pretty sure that's what happened to Haman. But by the time of the Roman Empire, impaling had been replaced with crucifixion. Jesus is crucified. And so in Roman times, when the Jews were making their traditions for the story of Esther, what they had was a, a fake Haman crucified on a cross, which they then set alight. And that wasn't comfortable for Christians who felt like that was coming a little bit close to Jesus. And so the emperor Theodosian actually banned, banned that. But yeah. And then there's a whole lot of traditional foods, the most famous of which is hamantaschen. Yeah. There are little cookies. Hamantaschen. So I have done some baking. There are two options. This is poppy seed with uh, honey and walnuts, and then these are mostly chocolate. And there are a few with like peanut butter and chocolate chips because I ran out of stuff. Ran out of chocolate. So, yes, I made them yesterday. These are hamantaschen, little triangle pockets in. So, <laughs> so the question is, why, why do they eat these things? Besides that they taste nice. It's obviously Haman, and the question is, what a Tashin? In Yiddish, which is related to German, a Tash is a pocket or a pouch. And so some people, some people say that the reason it's called Haman Tashin is like it represents the Haman's pockets, the money that he used to bribe Xerxes. In Hebrew, tash is weak, to weaken. And so another explanation is that it represents the fact that Israel's Jews' enemies were weakened. In Hebrew, in Israel, they're called Ozne Haman. That's not eyes, I'm sorry, ears. Haman's ears. Realistically, realistically, I think it was just a pastry, a cookie that they made back hundreds of years ago in whatever the style was that they did. And now, since then, they've been trying to figure out or just making up colorful stories to explain it. Great. Chocolate and poppy seeds. Chocolate's not traditional, but I figured it would be popular. Traditionally, I think it's the poppy seeds. You can pass it around. Yeah. Which one? Which one you get, Ryan? And they'll put like jam and stuff in them. Okay. And just while you're enjoying those, I'll finish the story. Let's finish chapter nine. So Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail. And Mordecai the Jew wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent. <laughs> you can go around again if you want. Hold on, I'll take one of the chocolate ones. Then try one of those. Oh, that's not one. 
Yes, there are eggs. Sorry, if you have any allergies, let me know. Eggs, gluten, milk, walnuts in the poppy ones. Yeah, those were overdone a little bit. Okay. Letters were sent to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the empire of Ahasuerus. Words of true peace to establish these days of Purim in their proper times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established. And just as they had established both for themselves and their descendants matters pertaining to fasting and lamentation. Esther's command established these matters of Purim and the matter was officially recorded. So traditionally, the days before Purim are days of fasting. Makes sense. And then they have their celebration afterwards. And after the previous uh, letters of war and destruction, we now have the second letter of words of true peace, which is kind of cool. And that's, and the matter was officially recorded. That is Esther 9. Next time, we will have one more lesson, which is chapter 10, which kind of summarizes, well, actually, it's a little bit, I don't know, it's a little postscript at the end. And then we'll look a little bit bigger picture of the book of Esther and some cool patterns and things that we find there. And then we'll be done. Well, oh, let me just pray quickly and then we can go. And I can tell you. <laughs> Lord God, I thank you so, so much for your faithfulness, Lord, that even when we are unfaithful, you are faithful. And I ask that you would... Um, fill us with confidence in your love for us, Lord, knowing that as Israel are, we are the apple of your eye, that we are loved by you, that we are your special possession, and um, that whatever we face in this life, you've given us victory. We will have victory, and we will rejoice in the end. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>